this is Oindrila this is Felina and you are listening to the stem podcast so this is the final weekend of march and we bring you the fortnightly news update Bombs and shellings from the Russian forces in Kharkiv has damaged one of the most prominent scientific institutions in Ukraine, the National Science Center, Kharkiv Institute of Physics and Technology. The damage is not limited to buildings and experiments, but has also injured civilians. The bombardment and rocket attacks have critically affected the Ukraine neutron source, an accelerator-driven subcritical assembly, which was recently constructed but was not entirely operational since there is no uranium enrichment around and it cannot yield any fission products without neutrons from the accelerator facilitating chain reaction there is no imminent threat to a nuclear leak the institute was founded by physicist abraham yoffe in 1928 in kharkiv the then capital of the ukrainian soviet republic It has lived through a complex history surviving the Second World War and the Cold War era and it was the alma mater of theoretical physicists such as Lev Landau, Ilya and Evgeny Levshitz and Lev Shubnikov. In a remarkable success story of gene therapy, a patient in the US living with leukemia is the first woman to be cured of HIV using stem cell transplant. Instead of adult stem cells harvested from a pool of people of similar backgrounds, the patient was treated with a transplant involving umbilical cord blood from an individual with an HIV-resistant mutation with partial matching in profile. Unlike the previous two recipients, a white and a Latino man, the mixed-race woman did not develop graft-versus-host disease, which is a disease in which the donor cells attack the recipient's immune system creating severe side effects. As she ceases to require antiretroviral treatment, the novel treatment shows the effectiveness of the therapy across race and sex. Researchers reported the findings at the Conference of Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in Denver, Colorado, last February. In more news from genetics, evolutionary geneticists from the Big Data Institute at the University of Oxford have constructed the vastest genealogical map for all of humanity. While seen by many in the past as a mammoth task bordering on impossibility, the approach relies on both modern and ancient DNA between thousands to over hundreds of thousands of years old. 3609 individual genome sequences from 215 populations were used to reconstruct the genomes of the common ancestors. In order to reconstruct the genomes of the common ancestors and use them to trace how individuals are related to one another across the globe, an ancestral recombination graph or meta tree sequence is derived from the set of genetic trees obtained from information at each point of the genome of a particular DNA. The tree sequence is then used to track the particular genetic regions back in time, meaning the first individual on the planet where the genetic variation was found. With improvements in the qualities of genome in the future and the accuracy of tree sequencing, we can hope for a unified giant genetic map for humankind. In a previous episode, we discussed the James Webb Space Telescope in our main segment. JWST is now fully focused and the evidence arrives in the form of the clearest picture it sent back to us. 
JWST imaged a test star in infrared frequencies, whose diffraction pattern has a ray-like appearance, confirming that the fine phasing using diffraction-limited alignment, in addition to the coarse phasing, is now complete. The image has thrilled astronomers who believe JWST is nearly exceeding their expectations in terms of performance. Behind the stars are visible dots and specks that are objects from distant galaxies in its deep field survey, a feat previously achieved only by the Hubble Space Telescope. The mirror alignments were performed using the Mirror Infrared Camera, abbreviated as NIR-CAM, while the other three cameras will gradually open in the next phases of operation. And with this, we end our fortnightly news update. You are listening to the So today's episode is about remembering Maria Guppert-Mayer, who is one of the three women awarded the Nobel Prize in physics so far. It was last month that it was her 50th death anniversary. She was born Maria Guppert in 1906 in the Polish town of Katowice, which was at the time in Germany. Maria was the only child of Friedrich and Maria Guppert, her father was a professor of pediatrics in the University of Göttingen, which is where she grew up. And it's also where she studied later on. What really set her apart from many girls that she was growing up around at the time is that she went to school, which was not regular affairs at the time. Anyway, she went to both private and public schools and eventually got into university. And it was sort of a very natural step for her, according to her family. This was a privilege for a woman at the time, given that this was the beginning of the 20th century and the suffragettes movement and the importance of women's education were just starting to take hold. What I found really interesting is that when she eventually went to the University of Göttingen to study mathematics, there was actually a spike in the number of women enrolling to study mathematics. This was because there was a shortage of mathematics teachers at all girls' schools. But it's so full of contradictions and it's kind of funny, right? At the time, math wasn't considered to be a woman's subject, but it still generated this interest among women because schools were gender segregated, which suddenly brought a lot of job opportunities for women. And mathematics actually became one of the most attractive areas for women at the time to study. Right, and at the time there was even a female professor of mathematics in Göttingen, a very well-known mathematician whose work heavily influenced physicists in the 20th century onwards, Emmy Noether. This is actually the month when her most famous theorem, the Noether theorem, was published, and it definitely warrants a discussion, possibly even an entire future episode. This theorem is at the heart of the foundation of modern physics, or in particular theoretical physics as we know it today. Exciting, huh? Very exciting. And Maria Guppert-Mayer eventually also switched to physics from mathematics. She also wrote her doctoral dissertation in the year 1930. And at this time, quantum mechanics was the hot and happening theory. And everyone, or at least I think most theoretical physicists, were exploring this new field. During her PhD, Maria also worked on a topic that is quite different from what she did later on in her life. Yes, and this topic was two-photon absorption by atoms, which could only be probed by experimentalists several decades afterwards with the advent of lasers. And in her PhD, she did explore this phenomenon from a quantum mechanical perspective. The members of her thesis committee, Max Born, James Frank and Adolf Otto Reinhold Windhaus, were actually eminent theorists of this time who were instrumental in the development of the field. 
Actually, all three of them that you just mentioned went on to win Nobel Prizes for their contributions. Maria Guppert Mayer actually also worked together with Max Born. In her PhD thesis, she expresses her gratitude towards him for his help and his mentorship. Exactly. So maybe we should get a bit deeper into what her thesis was about. So the topic was two-photon absorption by atoms, which was in her time a rather theoretical topic, which could not be explored experimentally. Only later, when the laser would be invented, it became possible to test what she wrote in her thesis. And this would be almost 30 years later. So when she was working on this, it was a purely theoretical topic that heavily relied on quantum mechanics. We have to remember that this was the 1930s and the idea of quantum mechanics, which is so important in modern physics right now, had only just taken shape. Okay, so what exactly did she study during her PhD? Two-photon absorption by atoms. That sounds like normal absorption of photons, of light, in atoms, but then twice as much? Yes, but also no. There are some subtleties. So an atom can absorb light, and especially it can absorb a single photon. This photon can excite an electron. From quantum mechanics, we have learned that electrons exist in different energy levels around the nucleus of the atom. And if an absorbed photon has enough energy, it can give this energy to the electron and kick the electron to a higher energy level. This can only happen if the photon has more or the exact same amount of energy than the difference between these two levels. So an electron can exist in different energy levels. It can have different energies. And it can be kicked to a higher one by absorbing the energy of a photon. Then, when you have two photons, it can naturally absorb more energy, namely the energy of both photons combined. And this means it can get kicked to an even higher energy state. Exactly. And what happens when it reaches this higher energy state due to one or two photons is that at some point it might fall back to its original energy level. Then it can send out a photon with an energy that is exactly the difference between the two levels. So it can send light out of the atom again with a very specific energy and thus a very specific wavelength or color if it would be in the visible spectrum. And with two-photon absorption, the electron can get excited to a higher level and thus also send out a photon with a higher energy. Yes, that seems logical. So what were these subtleties that you were talking about? Well, those two photons have to interact with the atom and be absorbed by it at the same time for two-photon absorption to work. Which means since all of this happens at a very small time scale, you need a lot of photons in a small space or a very dense ray of light to have a chance of having two-photon absorption instead of just one-photon absorption. So this is why it was only possible with lasers. Normal light, from a lamp for example, is not intense enough for this to actually happen. That's right, and two-photon absorption has some applications outside of physics as well. For example, in the medical field, some scans use fluorescent dye in the body, for example, to detect tumors or cancer. This can be, say, activated by shining light on the atoms that make up this dye, and then electrons will get excited, and they will go to a higher energy state, and then fall back and send out a photon that can then be detected. This way, they know where the dye is located in the body. But you need light with enough energy to be able to excite the electrons. 
However, the body is not transparent to visible light. As you might have noticed, it is though transparent to infrared light. So with two photon absorption, you could take two infrared photons with lower energy, but combined they would have sufficient energy. They can then penetrate the body and reach the dye that needs to light up, even if it is deep within the body. Yeah, it's amazing. There are so many applications for quantum mechanical processes that you would never think about at first sight. Maria studied this topic really at the beginning of her career and already got very deep into quantum mechanical principles. And we hope you have brushed up on your quantum mechanics recently, because also our later work would rely on it. Even though not exactly the same framework, after her PhD, she found an application of some of the techniques that she used in her thesis. And she published an important research art article on a specific type of radioactive decay called double beta decay. This was in 1935. And for this, she collaborated extensively with Max Born in the summers that she spent in Göttingen. But later in life, she went on to nuclear physics, which might be a lot more familiar for most people and is an important topic. So let us have a look at her life after her graduating from Göttingen. The next part of her scientific career would take place mostly in the United States, where Maria's husband got a job at Johns Hopkins University. She met Joseph Edward Mayer when he was visiting one of her thesis committee members, James Frank, in Göttingen from the US. He was living with the Goppert family during his time in Germany. Eventually, Maria married him and moved to the United States with him as her husband was offered a position at Johns Hopkins University. So this was around the time of the Great Depression and she did not have a paid position, but she continued working for the love of the subject. And the university addressed it as an anti-nepotism gesture, which was instituted in many American universities at that time to prevent underqualified people from getting a job or a promotion through the influence of people they were related to. But social scientists argue that in this time, this was mainly used to prevent women from advancing because they were often married to other faculty members and then weren't allowed to be employed as a faculty member themselves. Yes, in fact, the union of academics as partners in real life is not rare at all. And as a result of these anti-nepotism regulations present in many American universities at the time, the careers of women in various disciplines, including science, have disproportionately suffered. This would later be confirmed as a large-scale impact on married women with PhDs in the United States and the detrimental effect it had on their career. So this pursuit of meritocracy acted against its own interest in a way, by preventing excellent women scientists, like Maria Goppert Mayer, to get a paid appointment at the university where she was working anyways. Eventually, her husband was fired in 1937. The exact reason is not known. Many say this was because of the anti-women sentiment and the fact that Maria works there. There's also opinion that the students complained that his chemistry lectures contained too much modern physics. So I don't know if the chemistry students will agree with this, but I think you can never have enough physics. I have to agree to that. So, after getting fired from Johns Hopkins University, John Mayer took up a position in Columbia and Maria got to have an office there, but she was not paid here either. But this was a decisive moment in her career, in terms of, in particular, her science, because she met Harold Urey and Enrico Fermi. 
Later on, she would have part-time appointments in Colombia and eventually appointments to work on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos in the 40s and then Argonne National Laboratory in Chicago. At this point, she started to do nuclear physics. So this is a good time for us to focus on what she was working on. Let us start with the name nuclear physics itself. What is this branch of physics actually studying? Well, from the name you can already guess that it's studying the nucleus of an atom, which has different compositions for different chemical elements. Most people probably remember the periodic table of elements from high school and that properties of various elements are determined by their atomic numbers, which is essentially the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. So on the low end, we have stuff like hydrogen, oxygen, metals, for example, iron. As the elements go up in atomic number, they can have a radioactive configuration, meaning the elements are unstable and they can decay radioactively. Once you are past uranium, there are no stable elements anymore. They all decay radioactively. Yes, and this categorization of different nuclei was empirical for a long time, before theorists like Maria started looking into it. They wanted to find a set of rules and some physical explanation as to why it is the case, for example, that some nuclei are stable and some are not. And then you also have the super stable ones, and they have to do with what in nuclear physics is known as the magic numbers. These are numbers of protons or neutrons which make up the nucleus of an atom that lead to very stable elements, much more stable than the ones around it in the periodic table. The term magic numbers was coined by another famous physicist called Eugene Wigner because it all seemed a little fantastic. And with all, we mean the explanation that Maria found for some of these numbers. So they can be explained by something that is called the nuclear shell model and which is very closely related to the atomic shell model. So essentially, the nuclear shell model says that just like the atom and nucleus, which consists of various protons and neutrons, can have various shells or energy levels, and these levels can contain only a finite amount of protons or neutrons. And the way you would fill these shells with a fixed amount of protons or neutrons would give you these magic numbers because filled shells lead to more stable atoms. Okay, wait, let's go back. They're not called magic numbers for nothing. Let's take the magic away, step by step. First of all, what makes an atom more stable or less stable? I remember from high school that it had something to do with binding energy and mass differences between the separate protons and neutrons and the total mass of the atom. Exactly. A certain atom has a certain amount of protons and neutrons and then as many electrons as protons. For example, hydrogen has only one proton, while helium has two, etc. To determine the mass of an atom, you could naively just count the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus, and multiply that by the mass of a proton and a neutron. The electrons are so light that we don't have to take them into account. So let us focus on the nucleus, and calculate its mass in this way. But as you might remember, the total mass of a nucleus is less than the weight of the individual protons and neutrons. This difference in mass, which is a difference in energy as well according to Einstein's famous formula E is mc squared, makes it hard to take the atom apart. It wants to be in a state that costs as little energy as possible. And this difference in energy is also called the binding energy, 
and you can see it as the amount of energy you would have to put in the atom to take the atom apart. Yes, indeed. So more stable atoms will need more energy to be taken apart. Thus, they have a larger binding energy. The binding energy can be thought of as a combination of various things happening inside the nucleus. If nucleons are packed together into a small volume, they can cling on to each other, like particles in a drop of a liquid. On the other hand, the electric repulsion between two protons makes it harder for the nuclei to stay together. If the number of protons and neutrons are unequal, they would try to fill higher energy levels for one type of particles, while the lower energy levels are left empty for the other type. Also, an even number of nucleons will have a tendency to stick together better than an odd set of particles. And all of these together determine the binding energy, a measure of how stable a nucleus can be. Exactly. So let's go back to these magic numbers. What they indicate is that for a very specific combination of protons and neutrons in a nucleus, the binding energy is, all of a sudden, much larger than before, meaning it's harder to break it apart. So this means that we have a more stable nucleus. So how does this work? Why are these magic numbers the way they are? For this, we need to go back to quantum mechanics again. We have said in the beginning that electrons can be in different energy levels instead of the old model of electrons flying around in space and orbiting the nucleus. This would be the atomic shell model, where a shell also corresponds to an energy level. Well, in the same way, a nucleus consists of protons and neutrons that do not just sit happily in the same place, but are also sorted into different energy levels. Each level can only host a certain amount of protons or neutrons, not infinitely many. And when a level is full, the next proton would have to go to a higher energy level. It turns out that the nucleus prefers filled shells, where there is no place left to add another neutron or proton to the same energy level. Okay, so a stable nucleus means having so many protons or neutrons that there are no empty spots left at a certain energy level. And adding one more particle would mean having to jump to a new energy level. But then, to get to these magic numbers, we need to know how many protons or neutrons can fit in such a level. Yes. Note that we are now touching upon the core principles of quantum mechanics. Certain particles, like electrons, protons and neutrons, cannot exist in the same state. We can think of a state as a tag or an ID. Since their tags have to be unique from one another, they can maybe have the same energy, but then there need to be some other kind of characteristics that set them apart. And since we are talking about quantum mechanics, we call these characteristics quantum numbers. One that might ring a bell is the spin. Protons, neutrons and electrons can have different spin, which is often denoted as a spin up or a spin down, like the spin of a gyrating top. Okay, so if two protons are in the same energy level, meaning they share the same energy, this can happen but only if they differ in some other aspect. For example, if one has spin up and the other has spin down. So the fact that they cannot be in the same state or have the same ID is called the Pauli's exclusion principle, after one of the pioneers of quantum mechanics, Wolfgang Pauli. They are excluded from being in the exact same state and therefore there are only a few protons allowed per energy level. 
if we only take into account this spin quantum number, then there's only two options, up or down, one or zero. So then one would think there are only two places per energy level. Yes, but of course this would be too simple. Then we would get the stable configuration for numbers 2, 4, 6, etc. You would expect that these should be the so-called magic numbers, but they are rather different. For example, 2, 8, 20, 28, 50, 82 and 126. And this is how far people know with some degree of certainty. The list goes on, of course. Those that come after are still debated, as far as I know. Yes, and before Maria started working on them, we only knew about the first few magic numbers, 2, 8 and 20. And she proposed 50 and 82 and 126, which is only confirmed for neutrons, I guess, not for protons. So she had to come up with an explanation for the other magic numbers. She showed for the first time the importance of accounting for what physicists call the spin-orbit coupling. Let me explain this a bit further. So we have had this one quantum number that we treated now, spin, and we came to the conclusion that only considering spin is not enough. We need more quantum numbers. And one of them is called orbital angular momentum. You can think of it in, in the following way. Take the Earth that orbits the Sun. It has orbital motion, which is then resembling the orbital angular momentum around the Sun, but it also processes around its own axis, and this would then resemble the spin. So we have two types of rotation that are very different in nature. And we know that for an electron we can treat the orbital angular momentum and the spin as two separate quantum numbers. Whereas for the nuclei, it's a bit more complicated. You can measure the combined effect of the two as the nuclear magnetic moment. So when theorists consider the contribution of the orbital and spin angular momentum separately, they could come up with the magic numbers up to 20. But Maria showed that if an interaction between these two types of rotations, or rather angular momenta, are accounted for, the spin-orbit coupling, as she called it, you could predict the magic numbers beyond 20 as well. And guess what? The measurement for the binding energy for these elements also checked out. So it was Maria Gupert Meyer who added this correction to the binding energy of a nucleus in a nuclear shell model. And this was the last necessary part, as far as we know now, to understand how one could get to the magic numbers from a theoretical point of view. She herself described it as, beginning of quote, Think of a room full of waltzers. Suppose they go round the room in circles, each circle enclosed within another. Then imagine that in each circle you can fit twice as many dancers by having one pair go clockwise and another pair go counterclockwise. Then add one more variation. All the dancers are spinning, twirling round and round like tops as they circle the room, each pair both twirling and circling. But only some of those that go counterclockwise are twirling counterclockwise. The others are twirling clockwise while circling counterclockwise. The same is true of those that are dancing around clockwise. Some twirl clockwise, others twirl counterclockwise. So I've danced waltz myself and I can tell you that this would result in a lot of dancers just crashing into each other and falling. <laughs> 
But I'm glad that that's not the case for the nucleus. No, indeed. There is this spin-orbit coupling which leads to protons and neutrons coupling together within a shell, within an energy level, and it actually gives us more stable nuclei. This discovery of the spin-orbit coupling happened when Enrico Fermi was discussing the valence shells of transuranic elements with Maria, who then very quickly applied her understanding of quantum mechanics and representations of the rotation group in atomic nuclei, and a new and more complete understanding of the nuclear shell model emerged, taking into account this spin-orbit coupling. In John Mayer's words, and the quote begins, Enrico and Maria were talking in her office when Enrico was called out of the office to answer the telephone on a long-distance call. At the door, he turned and asked his question about spin-orbit coupling. He returned less than 10 minutes later and Maria started to snow him with a detailed explanation. You may remember that Maria, when excited, had a rapid-fire oral delivery, whereas Enrico always wanted a slow, detailed and methodical explanation. Enrico smiled and just left. Tomorrow, when you're less excited, you can explain it to me. Eventually, this insight brought her the Nobel Prize, half of which she shared with Hans Jensen. The other half went to Eugene Wigner. Interestingly, Maria and Jensen developed the concept of spin-orbit coupling playing a crucial role in nuclear stability and predicted the magic numbers independent of each other. Jensen was part of another research group that was working on the same problem at the same time and they published their findings around the same time. Over the years, they met each other in 1950 and eventually they even wrote a book together. Developing the nuclear shell model was a very exciting time in Maria's life and she ended up getting a professor of physics position at last. And she also got elected as a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the United States. And eventually they moved to the newly found University of California in San Diego, where Maria and her husband John both were appointed as professors. Three years later she was awarded the Nobel Prize, after spending so many years doing unpaid labor and eventually still finding her way through this and excelling at what she did. Yet the local newspaper at the time reported her achievement as San Diego mom wins Nobel Prize. What a time to be a woman in science. Truly incredible and not in a good way. Also speaking of women in science winning Nobel Prizes, she's the second woman to win it in physics. The first is the Polish scientist Marie Curie in 1903, and after the turn of the century Donna Strickland became the third woman to do so in 2018. Maria Gopertmeier got the prize in 1963, so after Marie Curie it took more than half a century for another woman to win the Nobel Prize. Yes, women are not so well represented throughout the history of the Nobel Prize, which is one of the highest honors you can receive in this field. And the foundation has also been criticized for overlooking the contribution of women scientists. Even though she did get the recognition for her work in 1963, she was unwell at this point. Right after their move to California, she suffered a stroke. She wrote her last research paper in 1966 and continued to teach, even though the stroke led to speech impairment. She was a passionate teacher and she taught and did research until she died in 1972. A truly inspiring woman. We owe a lot of what we now know about nuclear physics to her. She definitely deserves more credit than being the local mom who won a cute prize. Of course, working in nuclear physics at that time was not all good and well. 
As we briefly mentioned earlier, she was also part of the infamous Manhattan Project that later led to the development of the atomic bomb. Yes, but at the same time, during the Second World War, she made great effort to help Jewish scientists who had to flee persecution. So it is indeed a complicated legacy that she left behind. But one thing is sure, she was an amazing scientist who made crucial contribution to her field. And even though she had a rough start, she got the recognition for her work in the end. And with this, we end this episode of the STEM podcast. This is Oindrila. This is Felina. And you are listening to the STEM, STEM podcast. podcast.